Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. I have a fabulous guest today, uh, very, very well known in the true crime author world, Catherine Casey. So make sure to sit back with a cup of coffee and enjoy the show. Um, we're pr- This is Delilah of Imagine Publicity, just in case you're wondering. Um, and we broadcast on the Inside Lens Network, which some of the podcasts on the network highlight criminal cases, and some are open investigations. So I just want to let everyone know that our intent is to allow families to present information for consideration by listeners. Our podcasts and hosts in no way represent our guests. We don't claim to solve cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. So some of our guests present their own information, and while we might suggest some resources and assistance for them, whatever they do is what they do. We we have nothing to do with it after that. So all that legal mumbo jumbo out of the way. Um, we're going to be talking about Catherine Casey's latest book called In Plain Sight. And I just want to read a quick synopsis so that you can get a background of what this story is all about. On a cold January morning, the killer executed Assistant District Attorney Mark Hass in broad daylight. Eight shots fired a block from the Kaufman County, Texas courthouse. Two months later, a massacre. The day before Easter, the couple slept. Bunnies, eggs, a flower centerpiece gracing the table. Death rang their doorbell and filled the air with the rat-a-tat-tat of an assault weapon discharging round after round into their bodies. Eric Williams and his wife Kim celebrated the murders with grilled steaks. Their crimes covered front pages around the world, many saying the killer placed a target square on the back of law enforcement. Williams planned to exact revenge on all those who had wronged him one at a time. Throughout the spring of 2013, Williams sowed terror through a small Texas town and a quest for vengeance turned to deadly obsession. His intention? To keep killing until someone found a way to stop him. Welcome, Catherine Casey. How did you get involved in this case? Well, thank you for inviting me, Delilah. You know, I live in Texas. I live in Houston, and I write predominantly about Texas true crime cases, and this was a huge one. Uh, Never in the history of the United States had two prosecutors been murdered out of the same office. So this was actually kind of a history-making case. Yeah, I I vaguely remember when all of this happened. And let's kind of go into the the story of it, so to speak. The what what happened with the first murder? Who who was this person and and how did it all take place? Well, this is the setting is this tiny little town. Well, it's, it's 6700 people outside of Dallas. And it's a quiet little bird. People call it Mayberry. And Mark Hassey was an assistant district attorney. He'd been a prosecutor in Dallas. He was uh, uh, kind of a quirky guy. People liked him a lot. And that morning he got out of his car in the county parking lot. And a stranger came up dressed in all black, wearing a hooded mask like an executioner. Uh, approached him uh, and started, Mark said, no, no, please don't, please don't. 
uh, there was some conversation indicating that Mark knew this person, and the killer just started firing into Mark's body. Well, so initial reports said it was a stranger, someone not known to him? Well, they didn't know at first. They wondered because the two people talked, and it looked like some type of a grudge. But, um, you know, they really didn't know what had happened. Uh, Early theories, when they looked at this, um, you know, the place was just flooded. This little town was flooded with people from the Secret Service, Homeland Security, the ATF, FBI, the Texas Rangers showed up. Uh, when you kill, and when someone kills an assistant district attorney, uh, law enforcement responds. This is a member of their own, and they came out in full force to look into this. But, um, you know, at first they were looking at the Aryan Brotherhood because there had been rumblings in Texas that the Aryan Brotherhood was going to start executing uh, county officials that had gone after them and federal prosecutors that had prosecuted them. So that was a big focus for quite a while in the beginning of this case. So where did those kind of rumors come from as far as like the Aryan Brotherhood? Did Was there a big presence of them in, in Texas or in this area? You know, it's really strange, Delilah, because this isn't something the Aryan Brotherhood is known for doing. But uh, there had been this report that had come out about uh, three months earlier that it said that they were threatening to do things like this. And one of the newspapers picked it up and got a quote from someone saying that perhaps the Brotherhood was behind this. And that started to just mushroom. And all kinds of leads started coming in to the uh, Crime Stoppers line and through the mail to the FBI and to local police suggesting that the they that somebody knew something and that this was the Aryan Brotherhood. So all this hundred and some officers that descended on this little town started scattering across the country, going into prisons to interview members of the Aryan Brotherhood who said that they had information about Marcassi's murder. They couldn't not look into them as much as they weren't sure that this was the right direction to go. Yeah, they would have to follow up on any lead that comes in. So they really had no particular suspect, no no one within that organization that they could um, that they felt did it. Is that correct? No, they really didn't. But there were other things going on at the time too. There was a uh, prison warden in Colorado who was murdered at his front door. And that uh, killer was tracked down, and he was a member of a group like the Aryan Brotherhood. And in in, in incredible irony, he ended up on a, dying during a police chase. Uh, he was shot by police officers, and it was not too far from Kaufman, Texas, which all fed into this uh, speculation that maybe the Aryan Brotherhood, who had really just been these uh, you know, this organization within the prisons had moved out and was now attacking law enforcement. Did did they have any particular reason behind it, or they just were declaring war on cops? Well, you know, the police were uh, prosecuting, and Kaufman had been peripherally involved in the prosecution of an Aryan Brotherhood member. So, you know, it's... 
there were, uh, there were attorney general offices in the different states that were taking this up. Federal prosecutors were bringing these cases in. And there's been an indictment that had come out the year uh, uh, fall before that had, uh, you know, there were quite a few Aryan Brotherhood members who'd been indicted. So, you know, it was just one of those things where, like, the environment was ripe for something like this. And once the rumors started, they just mushroomed. Oh, I can imagine. Was there any other trail that they were following besides this, the Aryan Brotherhood? There were were quite a few because Mark was this prosecutor, and he'd been the organized crime prosecutor in Dallas County. Uh, So he had prosecuted some really tough guys, you know, and some of them were out of prison. So they were looking at those people. They were looking at uh, different people in the Kaufman area, but he hadn't done a lot of trials there. He hadn't been there that long. There was one person that they, they, his name kept coming up. His name was Eric Williams. He was a justice of the peace in Kaufman. And uh, Mark had prosecuted him a little over a year earlier uh, on a minor theft charge, but it was a felony. And Eric had lost everything. He lost his justice of the peace position. He lost his uh, law license. Uh, he, he lost pretty much everything. So, and he was kind of this strange, quirky guy that people always thought maybe was just a little on the edge. So they kept coming back to him, but Eric had attorneys and the attorneys were running interference and they weren't allowed to talk to Eric. So this went on for the first two months after Mark Hassey's murder. Uh, That happened January 31st, 2013. And throughout February and March, Eric's name kept coming up. And he kept being moderately cooperative, uh, sending them the records they asked for during those things. But he refused to be interviewed. He refused to be interviewed? He did. You know, you don't have to be interviewed. You can refuse to talk to authorities. Well, that's true. Did he lawyer up or anything, or he just said no? He did. He had lawyers from his theft trial who were uh, working on, you know, protecting him from uh, the investigators on this murder case. And that's the problem because the, you know, the FBI and the Texas Rangers and Sheriff's Department all had to go through the lawyers to get to Eric, and the lawyers uh, kept coming back saying, no, we won't let him talk to you. So this went on for about eight weeks, and they were just at a stalemate. They kept coming back to Eric Williams, but at the same time, they kept being diverted because the leads kept coming in about the Aryan Brotherhood. So uh, it was... I've heard people, one of the prosecutors told me that it was as if instead of uh, you know, going out and acting, they were doing more reacting to uh, the tips that were coming in on the tip lines. So he was on their radar. He was. And the, 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 the people in Kaufman really, really talked about Eric. They told prosecutors every time they talked to them uh, when the investigators showed up at their doors, they said, have you looked at Eric Williams? And Mike McClellan, the district attorney, when he stood over uh, Mark Hassey's body in the morgue the first day, looked down at Mark's body and said to the two other people in the room, Eric Williams did this. 
And Mark told, Mike told everybody he talked to it was Eric Williams. And Mike's wife, Cynthia McClellan, was frightened of Eric. She told everybody. She told her friends, if anything happens to me, make sure you tell them Eric Williams did it. Wow. So there was there confrontations between them before this all happened? Well, it turned out, what I found out when I was writing in Plain Side uh, was that there had there was bad blood between Eric Williams and Mike McClellan that went back for years. Um, Eric had cost Mike a job at one point. Mike had had to, Eric had found out that Mike was doing something he shouldn't have done, and, he, and Mike had to resign from a job he had with the state. And then about three years after that, Mike was running for DA for the first time. And Eric wrote a letter that ran in the local newspapers questioning his experience and whether or not he had the criminal experience for the job, which in truth he did not have. Mike's uh, background was really in mental health law, and it was not in criminal law. He, he had never prosecuted a murder case. But then he ran again, and he, he uh, was elected as a district attorney in Kaufman, and Eric won and got the Justice of the Peace uh, slot. And, you know, they should have been kind of, uh, you know, collaborators, but there was just too much bad blood there. I see. So he was he was kind of, I, I don't know, when, what kind of mental outlook did he have at, while he was working within the system in Kaufman? Was was there something about him that people felt was a little bit off or did he have other people he didn't get along with? You know, Eric got along with most people. They thought he was a strange guy. They thought he was this, Eric is this kind of benign looking guy. He's not particularly tall. He's a little pudgy. He had a great resume. He was an Eagle Scout. He went through, uh, he was a, a member of, you know, uh, ROTC in college. Um, he had a uh, he was a licensed in law enforcement at one time. Um, he was funny. He had kind of a strange sense of humor. He'd say weird things though, Delilah. Like at lunch one day, he said to uh, some of the people gathered around him, they were pretty much all lawyers. Um, you know, if I ever go out, I'm going to take a lot of people with me. And they all kind of looked at him and didn't know what he was thinking. And then, well, they thought, well, it's just Eric. He's being He's being a little strange again, and they all kind of laughed. But until the, the criminal case, when they took his uh, law license and he lost his judgeship um, and, and he became really angry, Eric was probably what I would call a functioning psychopath. He, you know, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he was always a psychopath, but, but he was working within the system, and he was managing okay. And then he uh, took, misappropriated uh, $600 for the computer monitors, and one of which he put on his desk at the county courthouse. But Mark uh, Hasse and Mike McClellan, um, Eric said he was using the computers, and I do believe that he was, that he planned to use them for county business, but they prosecuted him over the $600 with monitors and really ruined his life. And mm-hmm. at that point, at that point, Eric was mad. I Mark Eric was kind of, as we would say in Texas, locked and loaded. Do you know what I mean? Right. He was right, right oh, there. Yeah. I mean, he was right on the edge. 
and the prosecution was the trigger uh, that set Eric off. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure his life was just going along just the way he wanted it to until someone crossed his path. So and, with all mm-hmm. of this going on, and, and this is a, a small little town, what what were the townspeople, I mean, they must have just been in total shock. Well, they were in the beginning, and they were frightened. And the downtown courthouse area initially became like an armed, armed camp. Uh, people were, you know, who worked at the DA's office were escorted in by guards. No one knew exactly who had done this or who they might strike after next. But as it went on, you know, it was one of those things where in the beginning everybody's really nervous and everybody's really scared. Well, days passed and weeks passed and the first month passes. And then a couple of more weeks and then it's going on two months people started to kind of relax. It was like, well, they hadn't found the person yet. There was talk that maybe they would never find the person. Maybe this would turn out to be an unsolved case. But um, they, they stopped thinking so much that they were in trouble. Everybody but Mike and Cynthia McClellan. Mike, the, you know, the weekend before Easter that year, at the end of March, uh, stopped to tell one of the county judges to watch his back. And he said, you know, Eric Williams is still out there. And then he went home to celebrate the holidays with his family. And then what happened? Well, it happened the Saturday before Easter. And Eric had enlisted his wife, Kim, to help him. Uh, She had initially balked, but uh, he had threatened her and he had coerced her. And she was very ill. She had rheumatoid arthritis and was on heavy medications. And she had driven him to Mark Cassie's murder. And that morning they got up, uh, the Saturday before Easter, and Eric got dressed up like a SWAT officer. And they went and picked up the uh, crown dick, the white crown dick that looked like a cop car that he bought. And they drove to the McClellan house. And Kim waited outside in the car, and Eric went inside, and the next thing she heard was an assault gun going off. And in a matter of two minutes, it spit out about 26 shots. And then he came back out, got in the car, and they were driving away. And he was nervous at first. And then as they got farther away, he started laughing. And he talked about how he had to go back because... Cynthia didn't die at first. She was still moaning. And he walked back over and shot her through the top of the head. And he went, went back, back to again? Well, in the house, he was, when he was still in the house. He oh. shot Cynthia first, then went after Mike, and then went back to Cynthia. Okay. And, okay. I thought yeah. they drove away and then drove no, back to do no, it again. No, no, no. Uh. And then they, they uh, drove home. Uh, dropped off the Crown Vic, hid it in the storage unit that he had, and returned back to the house and acted as if nothing had happened. And Eric spent the rest of the day watching the TV, waiting for someone to discover the McClellan's bodies. Wow. And and do you have a little background on his wife? What 
what would make her go along with something like this? Was she, had he been abusive to her? Did, apparently he had her in line to go along with what he cooked up. Was, was that the way she was? You know, I, I think, Delilah, that this is one of those strange relationships where people feed off of each other. Uh, Kim, you know, had grown up in an abusive household. Uh, according to her, her father was very abusive. And as um, and she married Eric, and oh, at first everything seemed great. I mean, he was this really funny, smart guy. Eric was extremely intelligent. He had a Mensa certificate on the wall, really bright man. And, uh, you know, he was a successful lawyer. He was doing well. Everything was great. Well, um, you know, he had done strange things with Kim. He used to kill animals uh, like cats, and then he would leave them so she would find them. And a couple of times when they were together, uh, his gun uh, accidentally went off kind of in the direction where she was standing. So she was afraid of him. She kind of thought that what he was saying to her was, I could get you at any time. On the other hand, she was mad at Mike McClellan and Cynthia McClellan and Mark Hassie because they had destroyed her life. Not so much Cynthia. Cynthia wasn't involved in anything. But Mike and Mark had taken everything. I mean, she was... She was ill. She was on a lot of medications. They were losing their medical uh, insurance. Everything that they had was in jeopardy in her mind because of Mike and Mark. So when Eric first brought it up, she said, no, I won't do that with you. Uh, Eric said, you're, you're my wife. You have to do it with me. You have to do it with me. And he began following her, wouldn't leave her alone even with the parents, and uh, then threatened to kill her parents, Kim says. And at that point, she went along with it. But at the same time, like I said, she was angry. Part of her deep inside probably wanted this just like Eric did. Yeah, I can I can see what you mean by how they would feed off of each other emotionally and, and mm-hmm. kind of gear each other up for what they planned to do. But, mm-hmm. So... so uh, you explained, you know, they kind of had a vendetta against the McClellans and Mike, or Mark Hassey. Um, was there anything else that led up to this? Why, why he and she would do such a a deliberate act of violence? You know, I think somewhere in the back of Eric's mind, he always thought that he could do something like this. He kind of entertained that thought early on before the the theft trial and before he lost his law license. Um, he sent himself a, an email that uh, and saved it, and all it said was, the killer within me. And he had an enemies list. He'd gotten mad at some of the people in Kaufman over the years, the judge he'd worked for, um, Judge Ashworth, and the uh, one of the other judges at the courthouse, Early Wiley, and, you know, the sheriff, he was angry with the sheriff. So he, he he was the kind of person, the way Kim explained it to me was that Eric was always the kind of person who held grudges and never got over them. So I think it was just a combination of what had happened 
uh, with the theft case and who Eric was before this. Like I said, he was locked and loaded. He was right there on that edge. And, you know, I mean, what Mike and Mark did, you, uh, you know, I think they did over-prosecute him, but certainly that doesn't justify what he did to them. Right. So after the second murder, how did the focus change? I'm, I, like you say, um, Mike McClellan had told everyone and all, and his wife that if anything happened and uh, look at Eric. So is that exactly what law enforcement did or how did they get around to questioning him about this? Well, all of a sudden more uh, leads popped up on the Aryan Brotherhood and flooded the office again. But this time they set up about a five-man unit, uh, a five-investigator unit, to look into Eric Williams and to push that. The, the, the big thing here was that the only thing Mike and Mark had in common, the only case they prosecuted together was Eric Williams's case. So at that point, it became evident to the prosecutors on the case that they had that inve- the investigators weren't doing enough to look into Eric, and that that really had to be the focus. So they did, um, and you know uh, what happened was that the attorneys, Eric's attorneys, uh, quit. Uh, he couldn't pay them. You know, their, more and more of their time was being used up on the case. Word leaked to the press that Eric was a suspect in the case, and everybody from the New York Times to the L.A. Times, to CNN, uh, they were all showing up and, and wanting interviews with Eric and going after him, and the, the attorneys were having to field all of this, and it was just eating up their lives. So they had stepped back and told Eric he needed to find another lawyer, and that left Eric open for law enforcement to go directly to him. Uh, they talked their way into the house, and then it got a search warrant based on what they saw in the house. Uh, for, you know, a search of the house. And once they did, they found things tying Eric to the to the killings. So he was, there was a, uh, Eric was very egotistical and very manipulative. And he had been sending uh, in Crime Stoppers checks on the cases, believe it or not, um, to uh, Crime Stoppers and saying, I know this, I know that, and if you don't do what I want, the killings are going to continue. And they found evidence inside the house that he was the one who had sent those. So that started to break everything open. At that point, things started to, they brought Eric in and they charged him for terroristic threats because of those emails. And then the investigation expanded and they eventually found his uh, storage unit which was filled, just filled with weapons, uh, with ammunition. It had a uh, Molotov cocktail that he'd set up that they thought he was going to try to burn the Crown Vic with when he was done with it. Um, They found homemade napalm that he'd made that he intended to uh, put inside of one of his victims after he gutted him. I mean, it was, they called it Eric Williams' Little House of Horrors. It was just a really sobering look at what was going on inside Eric's mind and what he was prepared to do. That is, that is terrifying. 
it really is terrifying to think that he was able to amass that amount of weapons, ammunition, and all all the other things. It's it's did that send a chill through the rest of the the population? I I know I would be locking my doors. Well, they all knew that Eric had an arsenal. He used to show it off when he was a lawyer. He had it in his closet at the law firm. Uh, One day somebody opened up the bottom of the uh, copy machine in the office and to get some paper, and they found an an assault rifle down there. What's really terrifying is that after he was convicted on the theft case, Eric Williams had become a felon. So in the state of Texas, theoretically, he should not have been able to buy a weapon, well, a, a firearm. Well, um, you know, it, things are theoretical and things are practical, and that's not the way it really works. And after he killed the McClellans, Eric got rid of the uh, assault weapons that he had, the barrels on them, the uppers, they're called, uh, threw them into a lake. And then decided when when he wasn't arrested right away and things looked like maybe they were still off in looking at the Aryan Brotherhood, um, that he wanted to replace them and go after the other people on his list. So Eric got on the Internet and Googled uh, places that felons could buy weapons without background checks. And he was getting ready to buy more assault weapons. Wow. So nobody thought it was odd that he had this, was it just thought of as a collection of weapons that he had? You know, uh, yeah, it really was. I mean, it's it's unusual to have, I think he had 65 weapons or something in that neighborhood, uh, 65 firearms, including, and then he had all these night vision. He used to do things, Delilah, like he, he had a Segway, you know, one of those two-wheel things that you go uh, kind of scoot around on. Yeah, and yeah. He, yeah, and he'd go out in the neighborhood dressed in camo with an assault weapon slung over his back. He lived in this really quiet little upper-class uh, neighborhood outside Kaufman, uh, and the, the neighbors would see him out there patrolling the neighborhood like he was in the middle of, uh, you know, a war in Afghanistan. So, you know, I mean, he had part of what I kind of – over the over the course, I mean, I worked on this for two and a half years. Over the course of that time, um, you know, I came to think of Eric as really having this imaginary life. And inside his mind, he was always this warrior, you know, this uh, this soldier who, who was out, you know, doing these things. His attorneys, because he of the way he talked, they called him Dudley Do-Right. Um, you know, back in... In college, one of his friends called him, oh, that cartoon character, Tuxedo something or other. It's a penguin who's always out to save the day. Um, that was Eric in his mind, you know. He he was one person in, in reality, and he was another person in his imagination. And he had arms well, and, like the person in his imagination. Yeah, and it sounds like a lot of people just kind of dismissed his behavior, just that he's a weird guy. Well, he, really, he, you know, people liked Eric. He's a strange guy. Back in uh, in his first law enforcement job, they called him Opie from the uh, Ron Howard character in the old uh, Mayberry series, you know, the old uh, Andy Griffith series. Right. Um, you know, everybody saw him. 
people, he would say these weird things, but nobody thought Eric Williams would ever do them because he just didn't look like he ever would or ever could. Can't judge a book by the cover, that's for sure. No, people so, run deep, you know, and we really don't know what's inside. No, that's very true. So this is all taking place, what, in a man, a matter of about three months from the first murder to the second murder, and then he was arrested? That's right. And then Kim came, and they brought Kim came in for uh, uh, to give DNA, and they talked her into uh, answering some questions. It turned into an hours-long interview. And she kept saying, oh, no, Eric's a nice guy. No, Eric would never do that. No, I have a good husband. I have a really good husband. No, he wouldn't do that. He never hits me. He never does. You know, no, uh-uh. And then at a certain point, one of the Texas Rangers sat down across from her and said, how could you let him do that to that old woman? How could you let him shoot her through the head like that? How could you do that? And Kim sat there and just kind of looked down at her hands. And when she looked at him, back up at him, she said, I just did what Eric told me to do. And that was the floodgate breaking open because at that point, Eric, uh, Kim talked. And over a course of the next few months, they were both, after they were both booked on capital murder charges, um, she told them everything. She took them to where Eric had thrown the guns into the lake. Um, she took them to where he used the, he practiced with his uh, weapons underneath a freeway bridge before he went over to kill the McClellans. Uh, she mm. told him about all the planning that was going on in the house and, you know, what Eric said while they were working up to the murders. Wow. That's mind boggling. It really is. So mm-hmm. did they have, did they hold the trial in Kaufman or was it held somewhere else? They moved it to Rockwall, which is uh, just North of Kaufman. Uh, there was just so much publicity, and the town, I mean, they couldn't hold it in the in the courthouse. Everybody had worked in that courthouse. Eric had worked in that courthouse for a long time, first as a, uh, you know, court administrator and then as a lawyer, and then he became a justice of the peace and worked, you know, for the court system there. Uh, you know, the other two were the district attorney and his wife and an assistant prosecutor. So in this case, they they did move it to Rockwall. The trial went on for about three weeks. And, you know, there was a lot of evidence. Uh, Eric Williams thought he was really smart, and he is really smart. Uh, But, you know, this hate had built up inside of him. And uh, once they found the storage unit, once Kim started to talk, uh, there was just really a lot of evidence there. When Kim got up on the stand, that was just an amazing point in the trial. And they had the prosecutors had worked with her and told her that she couldn't try to cover up for herself. She just needed to tell the truth. And she got up there and she she laid it all out. And it was just kind of this devastating look at how, you know, dangerous hatred and revenge can be. Yeah, it's totally mind-boggling. So, with all of the all of the um, national press and everyone who was in town, and 
I'm assuming, begging for interviews with Eric and Kim. You're the only one that they talked to. Why Why was that? You know, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure. But as far as I know, they still haven't talked to anyone else, although I haven't heard from them since they got copies of the book. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, Kim had read one of my books, and she liked it. And so she said, yes, she would talk with me. Um, you know, and then uh, Eric, when I approached Eric, I think he was kind of intrigued with the idea of a book. Neither one of them at that point, they went down the road, but at that point they weren't doing any TV, they weren't doing anything else. And I, I think he liked the idea that somebody was going to take an in-depth look at this. I, like I said, I spent two years on this case, which is not unusual for me. I interviewed about 100 people. Uh, I went to the trial. I, I do all this stuff. And so I think they felt comfortable with the fact that I would really take a look at the case, uh, you know, and not just and, – and look at what – I think really that Eric wanted people to understand how this unfolded and what had happened to him. You know, uh, like I said, there's no justification for what Eric did or Kim did. Kim really could have stopped this at any time. Uh, she could have found a way to contact someone in law enforcement and tell them what Eric was planning. And then after Mark Hassey's murder, she could have told them that Eric had done it, and that would have saved the lives of the McClellans. Um, and she didn't, so. Wow. Well, did you, I mean, was there a lot of information or a lot of insight into, I'm sure you got a lot of insight into their personalities and uh, their side of the story. Uh, I can imagine, yes, he probably thought that would be great to have all of what he did in a book. Um, did he seem like someone who, like, you know, a lot of the mass murderers and so forth that we hear about, feed on the fact that they're going to be infamous. You know, I don't think that's what Eric was going for. I I think he at all, you know, um I, I don't think the publicity was I think he enjoyed that. Um, but that wasn't the reason he was doing it. With with somebody like these school shootings, uh one of the things is that the kids really want their name out there. Uh, they want their pictures on the evening news and all of that. And I, th- I honestly think that's feeding it. I don't think that was a factor with Eric at all. Um, I think he saw that as a benefit down the road, that, um, you know, people would know about him. They would know what happened to him and, and you know, that, that, he, that he would be remembered in some way. But um, that's not why he did this. Um, he did it out of hate and he was looking for revenge. Um, you know, this was... Mike McClellan's son told me at one point, I used to quote in the book, that this was really all about small-town politics gone really bad. Um, and it was. Uh, this was an extremely personal uh, series of murders, and it was... It, it you know it built up over like a percolator perk, perking over uh, a, a series of years. So um, it, it's different than somebody who just goes in and, and kills for notoriety, you know, like maybe the guy in Las Vegas. 
Um, right. Yeah, I, I can see the difference of someone yeah. doing something like this to strangers where he obviously knew all of the people that he murdered. Well, who else was on his hit list? Well, uh, two of the, well, the, the, the district attorney who was a former judge, who, uh, the one who re- replaced Mike McClellan was on the hit list. The county sheriff was on the hit list. The uh, Judge Ashworth, uh, who's a judge, who'd actually been Eric's mentor for years and had helped Eric get started, um, was on the hit list. He'd grown angry with him. So there were quite a few people on that hit list. Amazing. And um, what to- what sort of sentence did they get? Did they get life, I'm sure? Eric got the death penalty. Uh, I had never been to death row before, and this is the first time. And so I spent over that period of two years, I went in, I think, five times and interviewed Eric uh, in de- on death row, at the interview room on death row. Uh, Kim, because she had accusation, uh, ended up with a 40-year sentence, and she's up in one of the women's prisons in Gatesville, Texas. I went and saw her, I think, four times. Wow. This is a tremendous story, and, you know, I would love to get into a whole conversation about how do you pull this together? I just can't even imagine going into the prison, let alone death row, to interview someone. So I know one of the things I feel very strongly about you as as a true crime author is you know your stuff. You You make sure you know your stuff, and I respect that. Very much so. You, so before we run out of time, I want to get into a discussion about some of the other things that you're doing. Um, so you're you're writing a fiction series, or you've already written some of the books in a fiction series, correct? I have a, a mystery series. Um, my main character is Sarah Armstrong. She's a Texas Ranger. Uh, there are only a couple of women Texas Rangers. It's you know, it's really still very much a man's world. And Sarah is a lieutenant and a criminal profiler. And I have three books that are out now, and I'm working on the fourth book. Uh, and I'm really enjoying it. It's it's really, it's fun to re- write about a fictional bad guy instead of a real one. <laughs> Nobody really <laughs> is getting hurt. <laughs> and, and it, you know, it's all just, and, and you know, and if I don't like a character, I can write them out. Uh, it's, right. it's the first, the only time I'm ever in charge is when I'm writing fiction because, you know, a true crime, the case is what the case is. So, um, and if, you know, like in a, in a real case, if, uh, if I don't like the plot line, well, it's still the plot line. But, um, you know, I can actually go back yesterday. I actually went back and rewrote the first chapter a little bit and changed the plot a little bit. So, for the first time in my life as a writer, I'm actually in charge. That must be, that must just be a whole totally different feeling when you sit down to write something out of your own head rather than having to rely on facts and evidence. Well, you know, it really is. I mean, I'm, I'm using a lot of what I've learned. I've been in courtrooms and working on criminal cases since the Uh, since the 80s. So I guess it's 30 years now, 30 some years. So, you know, I've kind of, I've been in that world for a long time. 
So like in the book I'm writing now, I have my main character going in to interview somebody in death row. Well, I've been to death row. So I know what it looks like. I know what it's like walking in. I know how those doors sound when they slam behind you. You know, I know what it's like going through the sally port and having, you can't bring anything with you and you go in and you just have a few little items. I'm able to bring in my tape recorder and, you know, a, a, a pencil or a pen and paper and that's and a camera and that's pretty much it. Uh, no cell phone, no purse, nothing. Uh, and you walk in there and it's, I mean, it's just this strange experience. I know logically they're going to let me back out, but there's something about the sound of that prison door slamming behind me that's always been a little disconcerting. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I've been able to like really pull in a lot of my experiences over the years and use them in the fiction. Well, you sh- you should write yourself into one of your fiction books as the, oh. the true crime writer. <laughs> you know, you could, could be your own character. I could, I could. Maybe I wouldn't like the way I described myself, so that would be how, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> I'd be kind of fun. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it would be kind of fun. So, so a, a little more about Lieutenant Sarah Armstrong and what what made you make her a Texas Ranger, and and how is she evolving through the series? Well, you know, uh, as a reporter, I'm really a reporter. I'm really, I'm, you know, I have a degree in journalism and I, I worked for magazines for years. So I'm a reporter. And as a reporter, I've traveled really around the United States uh, working on magazine articles. But for the last 20 years, I've been traveling around Texas uh, covering sensational cases, murder cases. So I wanted my character to be able to do the same thing I did and really go out across the state. And the Texas Rangers have the entire state as their jurisdiction. So I did it for that. I liked the idea of this woman in what still is a very male world. Um, Like I said, the Rangers, a lot of women are in law enforcement these days, but not in the Texas Rangers. Uh, when I was working on the book, there was only one woman in the state who was a, a Texas Ranger. And, Is there a uh, tougher criteria of getting into that network to, to be a Texas Ranger? Is it is it a little tougher than it would be to be, you know, a local police officer or, or even an FBI agent or something like that? Because there are a lot of women FBI agents. You know, there are. That's, and, and they probably do some of the things that the, the rangers do, but the, the rangers tend to live, uh, they're not usually, there are some of them here in Houston, and I, I put Sarah Armstrong in Houston, uh, but a lot of them live in these small communities, and they cover rural counties, and they'll cover like a, there's only, I think, around 120 Texas rangers, and Texas is a really big state, so they'll cover two or three counties, and they travel a lot, so it's really hard uh, to do that and like have and and you know to to be a woman and have a family and raise children. So it's kind of a really non-traditional life for a woman, and that kind of I think has kept some women from getting in it. I think for a long time there was kind of a resistance to having women Texas Rangers. 
Um, there, I think there are three of them now. I could be wrong, but I think there are three. Uh, it, you know, it is, it's, it's a, I think a fascinating life, but it is kind of a rough job. So, so um, what kind of cases is Sarah Armstrong going to be looking at throughout your books? I know you have well, three books out now and you have a fourth one coming up, which will be released when? Uh, this fall. It'll be coming out this fall. It's called The Buried. Um, you know, it's, it, she takes on, she's a criminal profiler. Back when I was a magazine journalist and then while well, I've been working on the books, I've gotten to know quite a few criminal profilers, and I've interviewed them over the years. And, you know, I I do quite a bit of reading. And um, so she's handling cases like serial murderers. Um, In the book I'm starting right now, it's starting out where she's investigating a serial arsonist. Um, So there are those types of cases where you're looking at behavior and you're trying to narrow down a list of suspects. Um, it, it's really, I, I've always really liked a lot of, I, I think I do this because I think the whole crime thing I got into because I was trying to understand why people do these horrible things and how this all develops and what happens. Because I think why is the really important question because if you're ever going to change behavior, you have to understand why, you know, why things are done, why, what brings it about. Well, and I think readers yeah. sense that as well. I think that may be one of the reasons why true crime books and true crime television shows are are such a huge hit is because we're attracted to it to figure it out. And it's not so much, in my case anyway, I don't want to watch and or read about things just for the gory aspect of it. Um, and I, I appreciate the fact that, that you want to find out the why and I guess we're looking for answers as to you know what makes people do these things well I think that's very true and you know a lot of times people will say to me uh, especially women will say to me you know my husband thinks I'm really strange because I read true crime books and you know then they'll laugh and I'll say he's worried about you know about me and and I you know I, I it's not that that they identify in any way with these people are doing these terrible things in these books. It's that they're fascinated by the psychology, I think, like I am. And they're curious about human nature and what it is within the psychology of some people that draws them to do these terrible, you know, commit these terrible crimes. So it's not that they're like anybody in the book. It's that they want to understand how this happens and why it happens. Yeah, that would that would be the normal people. Then you have the ones that that do go for the thrill of it. I I uh-huh. think anyway. I think there's a whole segment of of population out there who collect murderabilia, who oh, you know yeah. correspond with inmates and and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And mm-hmm. that's that's another thing. I would like to know why do these people do this? It's it's well, again it's mind-boggling. That is a strange thing. Now, I honestly don't think most of my readers do that. Uh, most of my readers actually, you know, if you look like at my Facebook page and you see who I have on there, I have a lot of uh, families of victims on there. I have a lot of women who have gone through, dif- or people who have gone through difficulties in their lives, a lot of people in law enforcement. Uh, but you're right, there is this other segment 
and uh, you know they they are kind of fascinated and it's almost as if people like Ted Bundy become rock stars to them rather than exactly. who they really are, which are these pathetic, horrible human beings. You know that yes. uh, you know. I mean, Ted Bundy shouldn't be a hero to anybody, and any more than those kids in Columbine should be, you know. Um, but there is a segment of the population who does look at them and say, wow, look at what they did. Isn't that neat? And it's always been one of my pet peeves. To, and, and I think media coverage has done this in the sense that, like you say, Ted Bundy has become a, a rock star in in the murder uh, world we but can we name his victims? What do we know about his victims, really? We know everything mm-hmm. there is to know about a Ted Bundy or a Charlie Manson or you know other other horrendous people, but we very seldom can even name a victim and and still don't know anything about him but and that's that's a whole other show <laughs> that, that is, is another discussion that is. It, so before we run out of time, I I want the listeners to know where to get your books and how to contact you and your website and all that good stuff. Well, my website is just my name, so it's Catherine K A T H R Y N K C C A S E Y dot com. Uh, my books are available on Amazon in, through your local bookstore. Um, the Sarah Armstrong series is just on Amazon, but all of the other books are available anywhere uh, that you would normally buy books, whether it's on the net or if your local bookstore doesn't have it, if your indie bookstore is not carrying it, they can order it and get it for for them. Um, so, And there's more information on me on my website. So I sure do appreciate this. This has been fun talking. It's been great. And everybody can find you on Facebook and Twitter and all over social media so that you can become engaged in the conversations. You you always start such very wonderful conversations, whether it's about the latest book coming up or or the weather or your dog, Nelson. <laughs> it's his birthday today. He's nine years old. Oh. Oh, happy birthday, Nelson. Yeah, he's my best friend, you know. So yes. We spend a lot yes. of time together as I'm writing. He's he's right next to me most of the time. Oh, he's he's a sweetheart. I, you can just tell by the look in his eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I have totally and totally enjoyed this. And, you know, maybe maybe another time in the future we can do another podcast about all the different cases that you've you've investigated for a book and how you um how you pull this all together it just amazes me and i love what you're doing and uh, your books are just fantastic i can't i can't spread the word far enough and i've been thrilled and honored to have you today so oh, well, thank you so much thank you for inviting me on you, you know, bet. It's really sweet, kind of you to to ask me. You bet. And everybody, get your get your pen and paper together. Get on the computer. Go to the bookstores and go to KatherineCasey.com. Um, pick up these books if you're a, a true crime fan. This is 
an author you don't want to miss. So I'm going to close another episode of Imagine Publicity on air. You can go to my website at imaginepublicity.com and go to the podcast um, tab and you can listen to this interview shortly and all of the other interviews I've had the privilege of doing. So until the next time, stay safe out there and please be kind to each other. <laughs>